Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, my guest is Salman Rushdie, and we're asking, are identity politics a new obsession? I do think it's become like a catch-all phrase, identity, and identity politics is almost always in some way reactionary. In America now, identity politics is what seems to drive the white supremacist right. Rushdie is a major figure on the literary scene on both sides of the Atlantic. His novels include Midnight's Children, which won the Booker Prize in 1981 and went on to be voted the best of the bookers out of 25 years of prize winners. He sprung to prominence in a way far beyond publishing when his novel The Satanic Verses was first published in 1988, provoking protests from Muslims around the world and a fatwa from the Iranian supreme leader calling for his assassination. It forced him to live under police protection. Since then, he's written several other novels, including Fury, The Moor's Last Sigh, and two children's books, too. He was knighted for services to literature in 2007. Salman Rushdie was born in what was then called Bombay, lived in the UK, and now is resident in New York. His most recent book is The Golden House, about an Indian family which flees to New York and opens with the inauguration of Barack Obama, closing with the election of Donald Trump, labelled the Joker in the book. Along the way, it explores several people grappling to define identity, gender, nation and class. Welcome, Salman Rushdie. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, one of your protagonists works at the Museum of Identity, a mildly satirical invention, I suppose. Uh, You said you were happy to come up with it. And that leads us into a discussion of identity. This modern obsession with identity revolts me, says Dee. Is he reflecting your views there? I mean, not exactly, but but I certainly think some aspects of it do because it's become a way of narrowing people's perception in some places. You know, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about it is this: it's this very portmanteau word that means different things in different places. I mean, in America now, and therefore in the pages of this book, if you talk about identity, you're mainly talking about gender or race, but now you're also because of Trump, etc., there's a sort of argument about the nature of American identity, but what is it to be an American now? In India, where the golden family comes from, if, if you talk about identity, people really mean by that religious identity. That feeds into kind of Hindu-Muslim issues. I mean, here, I suppose, as the Brexit business has shown us, identity is about some kind of idea of Englishness, which is to be apparently yearned for and we could have if we just get rid of all these inconvenient foreigners. We might come back to that and, and dig into that a bit a bit later because I know you, you've been talking about that. But let's, let's stay on just on identity because it's quite 
core uh, yeah. to the novel at, at the moment. You point out that, that identity is something with almost too much of an obsession with it can take over any other considerations, and yet people feel very motivated by it. And that seems to have perhaps been the sort of spark it, it, for the it, book. It was one of the one of the things that drove the book. Yeah, because I mean, after all, this is a book about a family trying to change its identity, going to enormous lengths uh, to to change their names, to to erase the past, and to arrive in a new place, New York City, to arrive kind of as blank slates, you know, and, and people who will not ever discuss where they came from or what they did or why they moved. Did you think that was typical for a certain kind of immigrant, or is it something that came out of your own experience of moving continents, moving cultures? No, it's not mine because I my feeling is that I just carry more and more baggage with me, you know, and I think that uh, the more places that you have a connection to, you know, somehow that you just carry them all along in your suitcase. You take a lot uh, of suitcases through yeah, life. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, I've always felt that this this life I've had, which has bounced around from India to here to America is it's not a it doesn't feel like exactly like uprooting it feels like extra rooting rather than fewer I mean I think this in this case I think everybody who migrates as the golden family does has to face questions of adapting your identity because you have to you find yourself in a place where people don't know you and maybe you don't speak the same language as other people and so on and you have to adjust or you have to decide what you will adjust what do you, what do you preserve of what you bring with you and what do you accept from the place that you arrive in i do think it's become like a catch all phrase identity and identity politics is almost always in some way reactionary in america now identity politics is what seems to drive the white supremacist right, that they have an idea of American identity which is defined by whiteness. And that has led to these awful scenes of, of neo-Nazi marches and so on. Um, and on the left? On the left, as I say, the questions are much more about racial identity and, and about and, and now, which is one of the reasons it gets into the novel, there's this sort of, certainly in the urban centers, great obsession with gender identity. How do you feel about that? The awkwardness of language, was language having to be sculpted, seven different pronouns that, that it, where, where yes, perhaps I mean, we, would, know, we would have once just done he, she yeah. or it. I know that now that, you know, when, when students apply for colleges in America, they're asked to choose their pronouns. And many of them use choose they instead of he or she, even though there's only one of them. Truthfully, I have not had this experience. I mean, I'm teaching at NYU and I go around lecturing in American colleges a fair bit. But what I do think is Do you think it's generation? I mean, it's something that comes up, and it's come up on this show actually before when uh, Ken Rogoff came in from, from Harvard, the Harvard economics professor, who said that he had some worries about this language, that what you could say and couldn't say. It's not so much what people prefer to be called, which I suppose is a matter of courtesy, but that you then become punitive. You then yeah, start I, what to try to call out those who don't agree with you. So you were into a spiral of disagreement. Yes. And one of the things I found when I was you know, doing the reading for this book is that you find really quite deep and angry disagreements, even amongst people who are basically on the same side. You know, that's to say, you will find one kind of feminist arguing with another kind of feminist. I mean, first of all, I just found it very interesting. I just thought, here is this whole new thing, and I want to understand it. I mean, I've had a couple of friends, one friend, one acquaintance, who have transitioned, you know, I mean, actually one in each direction. And in both cases, 
really, in my view, quite successfully that they seem to be much happier people. So I have some experience of what uh, of this as at its best, let's say, as a kind of best case scenario of it. Also, there's a suggestion, uh, at least in in some of the dialogue, that yeah, there certainly are people who have fought very hard for those rights yeah. and who are much happier as a result. But there's also the suggestion that at the edges, and we're talking more about people who may be experimenting or feeling their way, or that it could be part of a fad. That's obviously the kind of language that drives campaigners crazy, but it is what a lot of people feel. Yeah, and, and I think the answer is we don't know. Some of it is not a fad. Some of it is people genuinely feeling as if they are wrongly identified. Yes. You know? And some of it, I think, is a bit faddish. And I think all that will come out in the wash. And you know? I think it's all it's all very new. So you let it, you, you yeah. just let it, let yeah. it take its yeah. course. The Golden House starts with Obama's inauguration, ends with the election of, of Donald Trump as a ready-made uh, arc for the novelist there, really, wasn't there? Yeah. And, and I think it's been said that it's a reminder that there's no progress in history that can't be undone. Is that your core feeling here? It seems to be a part of the project of the new administration to undo everything that the previous administration did. I mean, just because if Obama did it, it must be bad, therefore it must be undone now. And that's, I mean, it's it's a tiny bit pathetic, but it's also very depressing to see all the advances of the last eight years being unraveled. What, what worries you most? Environmental stuff. You know, I mean, I think the, the, the fact that the Environmental Protection Agency is now headed by somebody who says he doesn't believe in climate change is extremely worrying. The fact that they're proposing to allow mining in some of the national parks. What do you think the response of intellectuals like yourself, and I'm, I'm just guessing that residing mainly in New York, that you spend a lot of time with people who think like you, they didn't yeah. go out there to vote for Donald Trump, they'd never do so in a, a thousand years, and yet many people did. So that dislocation between the liberal intelligentsia mm. and a lot of people in America, does that concern? Yeah, it has to be faced. The narrator of the novel, this young American filmmaker, Rene, is, who is a very idealistic young American, is very anguished about what's happening in his country. And he says at one point how strange it is to walk around and not know who is a member of the 60 million people who voted for Trump and who is a member of the 90 million people who didn't bother to vote. It makes you distrust your fellow American. And I think it's become such a divided country that people are looking at each other in that way. What have you learned from the election of Donald Trump? Well, first of all, not to take things for granted. There was an assumption, which I think I was guilty of too, when Obama was elected, that a kind of more progressive America was coming into being and, and that that was just how it would be from now on. And this colossal backlash was completely unpredicted. I was at the New York Times on the evening of the election. They were all talking about how the headline next day was going to be Madam President. And they were patting themselves on the back for how well they'd covered the election. At 7 p.m., that's what they thought. At 9 p.m., Trump was president. And that's an indication of how, if you like, how out of touch the liberal elites were at that moment. I suppose that does raise the question of what we should learn from it. And let me bring you on to Brexit because that's another area where a lot of people, it was such an unthinkable for them that they failed to predict the way the vote was going to go. And I suppose it's not just about being a bit cleverer after the event. What do we learn from these dislocations? You know, I think we learned that you shouldn't have referendums 
Ooh, uh, <laughs> a bit too democratic. Um, well, uh, elections are what's, what's democratic. I mean, referendums on major constitutional issues which are going to be decided by a single vote majority, that seems pretty stupid to me. And I think that a lot of this is on Cameron for having made that decision. David Cameron, the... David Cameron, who was, who was the prime minister who, who made that choice. That's easy to say, don't hold the referendum. That obviates the problem, but yeah. it doesn't get rid of the, the people who feel as strongly yeah. as they feel no, about I agree. Well, I, mean, I think, look, it's the, the referendum happened and this was the result, and fair enough. But I would still worry that and it's not even a party political point because I think across the spectrum, there seems to be an unwillingness to realize that there's going to be a lot of trouble ahead. That, that, and that this is not going to be easy. You know? And there's, there's a sort of desire to say it'll be fine, whereas everything we see indicates that it will not be fine. I mean, my fantasy is that there would be a statesman or stateswoman in England great enough to say, OK, you voted for this. We're going to negotiate it. We're going to negotiate it out to the best of our ability. But we reserve the right to come to you at the end of that and say this is a bad deal. We can't recommend it. Nobody's going to do that, but that's what needs to happen. If we, we, we make you prime minister for a day, that, that, that's, that's what, what I would do. Would, how are you yeah. feeling about Jeremy Corbyn, by the way? I don't know, neutral, really. I mean, I, <laughs> I used to live in Islington way back in the day when he was, let's say, a big figure in the People's Republic of Islington. <laughs> and um, and um, wasn't very keen on him then. So and I, I was, you sound like you're giving him a chance where it leaves New Labour and the more social well, I mean, democratic thought, Labour Party. I have to say that I was, he did very well in the election, much better than anyone expected. And so we'll see. Catalonia is, is just a subject that's been in the news and will remain in the news for some time, I suspect, as a, a flare-up of a particular kind of identity. I suppose my question to you, sort of leaning back on, on your writing as well, because you, you know, having written the, the great book about... Partition is that this idea that a, a particular identity at a particular point in mm. history becomes dynamite it has yes, it seems, something of that feeling. It, it does seem as if we live in a moment where everybody wants their own country, whether it's the Kurds or the Catalans or every, anywhere you look. You know, people seem to want their own little patch of the earth. I think it indicates a disillusion with the structures that exist and. I think a lot of this internationally, whether it's here or in America or indeed in India, people are reacting because they feel unsupportive of the system that exists. They feel alienated from it. They feel it doesn't represent them. And I think that certainly was a factor in the Trump election. There were, there, there were people who just wanted somebody to go in there and smash things up because they felt unrepresented by the system as it existed. They wanted the sound of breaking glass, yes. someone said. Yeah. You were born in the year of partition, 70 years ago, and that sense of India, India's changing sense of identity very much informs a lot, a lot of your writing, particularly, of course, Midnight's Children, your very famous novel. What's your balance of optimism and pessimism now? I mean, of these three countries that I've spent my life thinking about, I mean, the one I'm most worried about is India. Basically, what's happened is the rise of a Hindu nationalist rhetoric which has commanded very, very wide popularity amongst the majority Hindu population. And as a result of that, the government is able to make quite fundamental changes to the nature of the state. You know, that's to say that the old Gandhian, Nehruvian idea of a secular India, which was created precisely in order to protect minorities, of which the Muslims are the largest minority, that's being unraveled at very high speed. 
and being replaced by a non-secular idea of the nation, by the idea of a Hindu nation, in which, by definition, everyone else is kind of a second-class citizen. And that kind of majoritarian rule is something, I mean, obviously, it's democratic in the sense that people vote for it. But in my view, democracy is something more than just majoritarianism. It's a place in which people should feel safe and able to express themselves, even if they're not in the majority. And have you engaged with Narendra Modi on no, no, I haven't. I don't think he's interested in the likes of me, because he's. I mean, one of the one of the aspects of this so-called Hindutva rhetoric is to reject, if you like, the English language educated Indians. That's the Indian equivalent of the liberal elite, that we are to be discarded as being corrupted by the by the West and and not authentic. An anniversary you might have very mixed feelings about is, is next year, 30 years since the publication of the Satanic Verses and someone who then had to spend a lot of your time hiding from for, from the consequences of the, the fatwa. Does that still haunt you, that period? Not, not, I mean, not really. Actually, I hadn't thought about the 30th anniversary of the Satanic Verses until I got here to launch the Golden House and suddenly everybody was mentioning this 30th anniversary to me. I think they haven't noticed in America, so nobody raised it there. Um, we won't tell them. Yeah, don't. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, the thing that I'm actually happy about is that now that the temperature isn't as high as it used to be, people are finally able to read that novel as a book instead of as this kind of political hot potato. It's interesting you say that because I was looking back to something. I don't know if you remember I interviewed you in about 1995 when this was still, as you put it, a hot potato. And Martin Amos, your friend, said, I think, to me about it, uh, he, that you had to sacrifice the purity of literary response and that you found that as irksome as you found yeah, having to be moved around the country in secrecy. It was very hard that the only language one couldn't use to talk about the satanic verses was the language in which literature is normally discussed. You could use political or theological or sociological language, but to use literary language seemed effete. And, and somehow incorrect, even though what we were talking about was a piece of literature. And of course, one of the things about writing is that you feel you don't want to over-explain your text. You know, you want to leave room for the reader to find their own place, their own connection to the text. You know, and, and I've always believed that a work of literature is to some degree completed by the reader. The reader's imagination engages with the writer's imagination, and they together make their version of the book. So I've always really resisted saying, this is exactly what it's about and this is how you should understand it. And then, in the case of that novel, I was forced to do that all the time for years, you know, and it felt, just felt wrong. You come across very relaxed now, almost. I'm pretty relaxed. Sunny, if one can say that, of a, of a novelist. And yet you had all those years, which must have been an extraordinary strain. Did it change your character? Well, I think it taught me things. First of all, it, you have to answer the question of why you're doing it and what is it that is worth risking your life for. So it made me much more aware of, of free speech issues, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, I always believed in free speech, but it's only when somebody tries to gag you that you begin to really believe in free speech. Also, I think I learned a great lesson about love, you know, which is that the thing I've always said that helped me survive it, to, to come through it reasonably in one piece. And as you say, kind of sunny of disposition. It has to do with the love that I was shown by friends and family, you know, and, and those people rallying around me and helping me deal with everything were of 
crucial importance to me. And, and it just taught me something, which if you want to put it at its corniest, is that the love was stronger than the hate. And uh, yeah, I've not forgotten that. Well, Larry David's new series of Curb Your Enthusiasm shows him promoting, and you're already laughing, uh, Fatwa the Musical and the Ayatollah rather comic form issuing a fatwa on his head with, with chaotic Larry David-esque consequences. Are you at a distance where you could laugh about something like well, this? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they did tell me about it about a year ago. You know, and I thought, fine, you know, I don't mind, really. It might not have been funny 25 years ago, but the fact that it is funny now, in a way, is... It's quite good to know because it, in, in a way, shows the extent to which the problem's been defused. Did you watch it? I watched episode one. I've been traveling. I haven't seen episode two. But all I'm saying is there's something you don't know that I can't tell you. That is that you're going to make a guest appearance? I can't tell you. Don't ask me. If we were to if we were to lay our you know, our dollar bets, <laughs> dollar yen, Mark Rabanne bets that you're going to make a guest appearance in Curb Your Enthusiasm, would I be wasting my money? You might be or not. This is shocking. There's a terrible evasion coming on here from the guest. I think you're going to be a guest and curb your enthusiasm. Well, I, I understand that you think so. <laughs> Clearly a diplomatic. You were a great loss to the, the, the diplomatic profession. But you did start out your career wanting to be an actor. I did. And I did. I always felt it to be like an unscratched itch. You know, and, but there you go. And, now you've got the chance, haven't every, you? Every so often I get off, offered some silly part and it's fun, you know. I mean, they, they actually, I did the Bridget Jones thing years ago, and they offered me a repeat appearance in the most recent Bridget Jones movie, but I, I couldn't do it because I was on book tour. But yes, that would have been. Were you being slightly sent up there as an inveterate party goer? I suppose, but, you know, lots of people go to book parties, for goodness sake. I remember Helen. I'm shocked, shocked. I remember Helen Fielding called me, asking me to do it, and I think her exact words were. Would you like to make a fool of yourself? <laughs> and I said, okay, and came along and did so, um, along with Jeffrey Archer and other people. Jeffrey Archer was really cross that he didn't have any lines of dialogue. Well, we, we wait to see if, if, if and when you turn up on screen with Larry <laughs> David. <laughs> yep, watch this space. Salman Rushdie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. We'll keep an eye out for you alongside Larry David in episode three. Listeners, do get in touch. What do you think? Is identity politics a curse or a blessing? We're on email, radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And one more ask for you. We love to know what you think of us. Please rate us on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. 